Well, good morning. So in our, in our house, um, you know, and if you have, raise your hands if you have more than one child, adult or whatever, you know. In our, in our house, we, the first kid was, was this kind of unique thing, but what changed is when you have two kids, they, they start to compete for your attention a little bit. Right? And so as, as Erin is getting older now, she's about a year and a half, and Graham's about to turn four, uh, what, what happens is we notice that Graham's pattern of behavior generally decreases significantly when we pay attention to his younger sister, right? And so, like, it's not that he's a bad kid, it's just that you're used to being kind of the center of attention and you, you know, pay more attention to one and the other and kind of no matter how it goes. Uh, in our house, one of the things we've observed is if I hug Britta and our daughter sees it, she will start wailing because... Hers, she's the only person that Britta is allowed to give any sense of affection to. Can't come to me, can't come to Graham, it has to come to her. So there's these dynamics of kind of sibling rivalry for attention and, and affection, and it can get pretty ugly, right? Like if I pay too much attention to Graham, then things go sour. But the inevitability is that when you have two kids, you generally will pay a little bit more attention to the younger of those children. And it's not because you love them less. You have to have a, two kids as a parent to understand this, how the love of children works. But there, you don't love your children less. You like one more on any given day. But you don't love them less, right? There's never a competition in your own mind. But for them, it's perceived. And so Aaron gets a lot more of our attention, generally because when Aaron climbs something, she might die. When Graham climbs something, he's old enough to figure out how to jump off of it and not die. And so if I have the choice between diving after my three, four-year-old or my one-and-a-half-year-old, I'm going to pick the one over the other, and there's just competition that comes there. But from the vantage point of Graham, Aaron is probably the favorite at this point in life, right? Not by any intention, not because we're bad parents, but just because it's the nature of the beast. I think sometimes we think of this way as, as Christians in the church when we talk about the lost, when we talk about things like outreach or evangelism or the church's focus on being out in the community in the world, right? We give the Pharisees in our last week's passage a bad rap, but if we're honest, like, there's a certain element of truth to when we, when we talk about as a church focusing out there, those of us who are in here get a little bit, not jealous, but like attention starved, right? The church should be about the people that are within it. And, and that's true. There's a goodness to that. And, and so one of the things that's really important to understand when we talk about uh, the lost, whether it's in a sermon like this or when we focus on, on outreach as a community, right? It's not that we don't love all people. It's not that as a church and as a, as a body, we're not about being together and, and loving one another and caring deeply for the people. But there's times where attentions get shifted to something that is tremendously important, right? Like, you're in here. You're healthy-ish, right? Most of us, in some way, shape, or form, right? But there's people dying. And so we, we kind of have like a, an attention focused outward but we don't lose track of what's in here. And one of the things important to remember is that God doesn't lose track of what's going on in here either, right? God never says that he stops caring or being invested in or knowing about the lives of the 99 when he goes after the one sheep, right? That's just not how God operates. We get that we're supposed to be reaching outside these walls, but what about inside? And when we have those thoughts, 
We instinctively feel guilty, but we shouldn't. It's, it's a normal thing to want the Lord to care about us, to care about those who are in the church, to care about the growth and the, and the people that are in here and their needs being met and all those things. Those are good things, and they are part of the mission of the church. And so in our passage today, we're going to continue to look at Jesus' lost parables, and I want us to remember a few things as we do that. Number one, these parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son that we'll look at next week, they're all one account, right? Remember that. They're not separate parables spoken at different times. They are one kind of cohesive thought that all interrelates that serves to answer the question of the Pharisees. Right? They, they're, they're wondering, why is it that he hangs out and dines with these sinners and tax collectors and, and wicked people and dirty folk instead of paying attention to us? And so he's seeking to answer that question through all three of these parables in a different and unique way. And so especially when we look at today, there's a similarity between this parable and last week's parable. Some of you might actually think they're the same, right? The second is this. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin are essentially the same exact parable. So what I could do is I could recycle my notes from last week, not write a sermon, and I could just put coin wherever there's sheep, and you would have to hear me again for I think it was like 38 or 40 minutes or something like that, and half of you would probably get up and leave, right? Number three, though, Jesus is a master storyteller. When we look at parables, we can never forget this. Whatever opinion you have of a story that Jesus tells, Jesus is the master storyteller. There does not exist an author, both dead or alive or future coming, that is better at telling stories than Jesus is. Well, some of you might say, well, what about it? No, he's the master storyteller. So when Jesus says something, repeating himself, we should ask some questions. Number one, why repeat the same basic account? Right? Why have a parable of the lost sheep where there's the 99 and the 1, and then after that have a parable of the lost coin where there's the 10 coins and 9 coins that are left and the one that is lost, and the woman goes and seeks the coins, the shepherd goes and seeks the sheep, they find it, they rejoice. It's the same parable. Why tell it twice? Well, in Hebrew literature, there's no such thing as exclamation points. They don't have punctuation marks, so to say. And so what happens is, when you want to highlight something, accentuate something, bold something, exclaim, exclaim something, make a point to say, hey, this is really important, it's generally said twice. Right? Sometimes in Scripture, Jesus will say, verily, verily, I tell you, or truly, truly, I tell you. That double is like, truly, exclamation point, I tell you. And so when we see things repeated in Scripture, both overtly or, in this case, kind of the same story in a different package, it's, it's done for emphasis. He really wants you to get this. And I figure if, if it's good enough for Jesus to talk about twice, then we can talk about it for two weeks in a row. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. The second thing is, when we look at things like this where Jesus repeats himself, it's important to understand not only why does he do it for emphasis, but what are the differences? Because it's pretty rare that Jesus actually says the same exact thing in the same exact way two times in a row in one context to answer one question. Right? And so when we have the, these parables kind of side by side, we have to ask ourselves, well, why talk about sheep and coins? Why talk about a shepherd and a, and a woman? Why, why have these things be the same but totally different as well? And usually when we get into the why difference, we start to learn some new things about what God is trying to tell us in the midst of these passages, right? And so let's, let's stand together as we read um, these, this short verse. This is the shortest you will ever stand, other than if we ever do like a, 
a sermon on Jesus wept. You know, <laughs> this is one of the shortest times you'll ever stand. Um, this is Luke chapter 15, verses 8, 9, and 10. That's it. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so I tell you, therefore, is joy before the angels of God over even one sinner who repents. It's the word of the Lord. You have a seat. It's almost like you just did like a up-down. It's calisthenics in here. So first, before we get into kind of the differences, let's look at some context here. Um, so the, the woman has lost a coin. Uh, the coin, is, you know, the silver coin, it's most likely what they call a drachma. And a drachma was about like a day's wage for a poor, unskilled laborer, right? This isn't like lawyer billable hours hourly wage. This is like minimum wage, like before stuff happened and it went from like seven or eight dollars to whatever, you know, now it's like 15 bucks an hour in most places. Like picture like in today's economy, like six, seven bucks an hour. So we're talking about what today would be like, I don't know, five, six, seven bucks, right? Is, is what, we're, what we're seeing here is lost. She has 10 of them total and loses one. And that 10 drachma, those, those 10 coins that we're told is the kind of sum total of her financial possession. Uh, it could be a couple things. Probably they are either a representative of her entire life savings, so everything she as a, as a, as a person owns, right? Or, since it's a woman, and culturally women, you know, there's some stuff about women had less rights and property, we don't know her family context. It's possible that it was a dowry, that it was her, the, the dowry that was kind of worn. They would wear it around their, head, their neck like a necklace, and whenever there would be a husband, right, you'd have like a payment. So the wife would pay the husband's family and, and all that kind of fun stuff uh, that we hopefully don't do anymore today. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, if I ever do a wedding where there's a dowry involved, we're probably going to have some extra counseling because that's not okay in today's day and age. But we had either the dowry or the life savings. And from that, we can tell that her entire life savings are about 10 days worth of work total. That's what she's earned. Right? That's what she's got. So she's poor. It's pretty obvious that this is whatever the context of this woman is, whether she is a yet unmarried or she is married and her family's just somehow never mentioned or perhaps she's widowed. We just simply don't know anything about it. But we know that whatever her circumstance, she's someone who is of extreme poverty. The other thing we need to understand is, is the houses in that time. We think of a house. Like if you dropped a coin in your house, you would probably just pick it up off your kitchen floor. But the houses in this time were far more primitive. The, the, the floor of the house was kind of a cob, maybe cobblestone, rock, dirt, gravel type of you know, scenario. You, know, you had rough stones and dirt and mud and all kinds of stuff. And so what they would do is they would cover the entire floor with straw. It was kind of like the, ins the floor insulation of your house. Right, so that the cold from the ground wouldn't come through. Right, and so this isn't dropping a coin here where maybe it bounces into something and you see where it went. It drops into a floor that is immensely hard to find. Right? However she lost this coin, we know that she lost it in her house, and we know that the floor that it must have fallen on, whatever room or whatever area it was in, is really tough to get to. Right? If you want to know how tough it is, go out to the end of a parking lot, take a, take a penny, and just throw it into the grass as far as you can, and then go look for it. 
Not easy to do. On top of that, houses didn't really have windows in the context of this time frame, and so it was dark, and that's why we're told she lit a lamp and, and sought after it. So she's in a dark room that is covered in, in straw and dirt and rock and pebbles and all kinds of stuff. She's looking for a singular coin, right? And she's doing it with kind of a, a candle lamp, essentially, walking around trying to light up little areas. And so when she's searching frantically, she's tearing out, the ins literally tearing out the insulation of their house. This is the equivalent of you saying, I lost a coin in one of my walls of my house. And you start ripping down walls in your home to be able to look through the insulation to see if you can find it. Right? If you really want to live into this passage and you have blown in insulation, crawl into your attic when you get home, throw a coin and just start digging and see how long it takes you to find it. This woman is destitute to find what she has. She turns her house entirely upside down just to seek after it. How many of you, if you lost 20 bucks in your house, would search that intensely for it? There's a couple that raise their hand, right? Absolutely, right? 20 bucks is a lot. And here's the thing, 20 bucks isn't really all that much money. But imagine you're a single mom who just fed your kids the last of what's in the fridge and put them to bed, and that 20 bucks is what's going to feed them from now until next Thursday when your next paycheck comes in. How much are you going to search for that 20 bucks, right? It's, it's relative to the circumstance in which you find ourselves. A lot of us, I'm not saying that 20 bucks is nothing and we wouldn't care, but we wouldn't turn our house completely upside down to find it. We wouldn't spend hours upon hours upon hours upon hours looking for every last dollar of that, right? We would just cut our losses and say, you know what? It'll turn up someday, right? That's, that's the difference. Money is a relative thing. And so when Jesus uses this parable of the coin, he's talking about things that have relative worth and term to the beholder of the coin. But every one of us cares about it. So for you, I just need to ask, like, to think of your own thing. What's your threshold? What is the amount of money that if you lost it would set you off into a true panic where you would start to search frantically? When you hear the story, the parable of this woman, that's the amount I want you to think about. Whether it's 20, 50, 100, 1,000, 10,000 dollars, whatever it is for you, like the money, the, the amount that in your head you go, if I lost that, like we're screwed. Like if I don't find it, my life is over. Right? I need I need to find it, or my family doesn't eat tomorrow. Right? It's hard for us to even fathom what that looks like today in a cashless world where we just swipe our, our credit cards and get whatever we need, right, and go into debt more than we should and all those kinds of things. But that's not how it worked then. She lost 10% of her entire life savings. And so she's hunting it frantically, right? Depending on where you are in life, the amount varies, but it's something that every one of us can relate to if we just change the dollar decimal a little bit, right? Now, most of the story... It's just the shepherd account with different characters, right? But there are some key differences in this passage. Number one, sheep and coins are not the same thing at all, right? Hopefully we know that. If you don't know that, then we need to have like a 001 Bible class, right? But sheep and coins are, are not the same, and they're not the same in a couple ways. Number one, the, the urgency for finding them is a little bit different, right? And he, here's what I mean. The sheep that was lost was out in the wilderness off somewhere. Every minute that sheep goes unfound increases the risk of something catastrophic having happened to it, 
right? So if that sheep is lost, like when you ever like see on, on TV, like when there's a child abductions or people go missing, right? The first 24 hours are critical, right? Because after 24 hours, the likelihood of being found or found alive is very slim. It like drops crazy amounts, right? With the sheep, it's, it's, a, it's a living thing out in the wild. It's out there where there's danger and wolves and, and all kinds of harm that can come to it, either through exterior forces or of itself. And so the sheep has to be found very quickly and very pressingly because if not, it could be dead. And if it's dead, it's useless to the shepherd. If a sheep dies or is marred by a wolf out in the wild, that sheep has zero worth whatsoever. The coin, however, is a little different story. The woman loses the coin in her house. That coin, number one, is lost inside of the safety of her home. And number two, no matter how long it takes her to find it, it does not change its value, right? Unless you live in a time of inflation like ours today then maybe that coin is worth like a third of it by the time you find it next week, right? But, but in that time, if she, if she takes a week to find the coin, she finds the coin. It's still worth a drachma. If she takes a month, it's still worth a drachma. If she finds it tomorrow, it's still worth a drachma. The value of the coin doesn't decrease, and the coin is more secure than the sheep because it's in the house. How many of you have lost something in your house that you, that's important, but because you know that it was lost in your house, the urgency to find it just goes away. Like, it's a thing that matters, but you're like, okay, I know I had it in the home. I know it's somewhere safe in here. I didn't lose it out and about. Like, you lose your wallet, but you know you just, like, took a receipt out, and then it was gone. So it's somewhere in the house. You probably would go about your business doing a couple other things and look for it later, right? Because you know it's safe. Like, ah, I'll find it when I'm cleaning out the basement. Right? That's how I am with most of my tools. If I don't know where they are, I'm like, ah, I'm going to be looking for a, a, you know, a wrench and I'll find a drill or a drill and I'll, I'll find a wrench or whatever. It just turns up. The urgency to search for things that are, number one, holding their value, not in danger, and number two, in the safety of our own house, are significantly different in our lives. But not so with Jesus. Right? Jesus pivots here a little bit. He's talking about a coin which reduces the, the, the value loss and the urgency of finding it. Right? The coin has this set value. But no matter how much that value shifts or how much that value matters or how safe something might be lost, the urgency to find it still exists. Right? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? The woman searches for that coin almost more frantically than the shepherd searched for the sheep. We're not told a whole lot about the shepherd's search. It just says he left the 99 and he went out until he found it and he came back. We don't sense a panic in the voice of the shepherd or the actions that he takes. But with the woman, there's like this frantic nature to it. She is terrified. She searches for that coin. She grabs the lamp. She moves the insulation. She doesn't even care if she breaks the insulation in her house. She's just sweeping stuff aside and she has to get it. And she's in a panic mode and someone's probably asking her about something. She's like, yeah, 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 kids, go away. Like, whatever it is, I just have to find this coin right now. And so what Jesus is communicating is, the, val the, the value to him of the coin is priceless. And we are that coin. And so we too, to him, are priceless. Even though the coin is enjoying relative safety within its own house. Right? It doesn't matter. 
The fact that the coin is in, 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 in the house of the woman and the coin will hold its value does not in any way seem to reduce the urgency and fervor of the woman of going to seek it. And it tells us about how Jesus feels about those of us who are lost, even those of us who feel lost within his own house. Right? That's the second major difference. The sheep was lost outside. The coin was lost inside of the house and the safety that it represents, right? There's a whole lot of us who are Christians, who are walking with the Lord, who are, who've been here forever and ever, but there's times where we feel like we're lost. Right? The Lord wants you to know that he will pursue you as a lost person, even if you're enjoying relative safety in the house and it doesn't seem like it should be that urgent. You might say, yeah, yeah, I'm struggling with things, but there's people out there that are way worse off. Jesus would say, yeah, yeah, but listen, I'm God. I care about you as well, equally. I have the same level of passion and fervor for reaching and finding you as I do them. And it doesn't matter that you're safe in my house, stashed away. It doesn't matter that, I, that I've got you in the palm of my hand. When you feel lost, I'm there for you with an urgency that you can't even imagine or ask for. The coin is inside the house. The Lord pursues us as a people who love him, even when we feel like we're growing distant from God. When you go through seasons where you feel like the Lord is not present, where you feel like you're disconnected from him, whether it's due to just the nature of the world and the things that happen to you, or whether it's due to your own sin and you've kind of strayed away and you walk in ways you shouldn't and you feel away, you, you wander off in your lostness. The Lord pursues you all the same. When we say, look, we, we, I get reaching out to the people that don't know Jesus, but what about us? Like, the Lord says, don't you think I'm big enough to, to care and love and, and work in the lives of all of you? Do you really think I have to pick between my attention? See, that's where the analogy of parenting breaks down, because I am one human being, so I have to either put my attention on one kid or the other. Jesus isn't limited by those kinds of silly, finite human things. The Lord's attention is in all places at once, and so he cares for the world outside, and he cares for you in here, and he cares for me, and he cares for all of us in equal measure, and he seeks relentlessly those who are lost, both inside his house and outside his house. And he's a great searcher. Right? He's so good at it. The third um, difference that we see is not, really, is not really different. We have this aspect of celebration, right? And now, this isn't a difference, but more of an emphasis, right? When the sheep was lost, it was a public thing. You know, the shepherd, the sheep, sometimes there's a shared kind of element of that in the community, and the sheep was brought home, and there's rejoicing. The, the woman's coin seems silly. Like, how many of you, if you found the 20 bucks you lost in your house, would then throw a giant party? Like, you call all your friends, you make a Facebook event, found my $20 party, come tonight, Right? But that's what happens. She calls the whole community together and says, come rejoice with me, right? The implication there is that there was celebration that occurred within the, the whole community in which she resided about the fact that she found the one single little coin. And here's the great irony. Celebrations cost money. And I'm going to tell you this. To have a whole community celebrating, even with the crappy wine, is going to cost more than the coin that was found. 
Who here makes economic sense of that? If you're desperate enough to search for hours for the 20 bucks you lost in your house, what sense does it make for you to find it and go, oh my gosh, I have to call all my friends. Go to Costco and buy all the food and booze. And you go spend $300 on food and booze at Costco to pay for the party to celebrate the 20 bucks you just found. How dumb is that? You're not a very good economic person. You should check your retirement savings if that's who you are, right? But that's exactly what she does. And it tells us something about the way that the kingdom of heaven works. And here's what I want us to notice. At the end of this passage, the Lord kind of brings it home, right? He's telling it as a parable, a story that's made up. There's no real woman. This woman doesn't exist. She's made up by Jesus as a story, as the master storyteller. But then at the end, in verse 10, he brings it home. And the only reference he makes to the whole story when he brings it home is to the celebration itself. Saying, look, just as I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This woman found this much money. She then had this big of a party. Yes, it makes no economic sense. But guess what? In heaven, when there's this much finding, there's this much celebration too. Even the smallest, most insignificant lost person being found causes a party in heaven that would break any church budget. We need to be a people that celebrate in the same thing. Here's something to think about. Jesus draws this conclusion of how important it is to celebrate when the lost are found. We have to ask ourselves, do we celebrate to this level when the lost are found? If you want to know, the whole reason, you know, people ask sometimes, well, why are you Presbyterian? Um, I worked in a couple different church contexts, you know, through college and helped in some different places. How'd you land on Presbyterian? And, and really, the, the answer is just simply that I kind of looked at all the different denominations, you know, Presbyterians, Baptists, Pentecostals, Methodists, whatever. And in the end, I just decided that generally Presbyterian churches have the best food spread. <laughs> and so whatever the theology is, I don't, know, I don't really care. I just, it's the best food. Like when there's a potluck, like the Methodist potluck's just not as good. No, I'm... I'm I'm joking, but there is a serious undertone here. Do you know why like, the, the joke is that like, Presbyterian gatherings don't happen without food? Right? Like, it's one of the, the butts of the joke of Presbyterianism is whenever there's two or more people gathered, there's potluck, there's casseroles. Right? Not God is there, but there's casseroles. Right? Do you know why that is? Because historically, Presbyterians were really, really good at the celebrating. They would gather together constantly. They would be together. They would celebrate together. This whole idea of potlucks and, and having gatherings and meals, it was a celebratory thing. And so, yeah, I'm really glad as Presbyterians we have a silly rap about being the food people. Because we should. We should like to party. Because every time a loss is found, there's celebration. We are not good enough at celebrating the finding of the lost, both in our house or out of our house. Can you imagine if I went to the session this week and I said, hey, um, so we need to take about 30 to 40% of our budget and dedicate it to lost parties? Um, and by the way, you're not taking it out of my salary, so you guys figure that out. Uh, have fun. Right. Now, I'm not going to do that. But, we, but it tells us something about the nature of things. We, we ought to be able, as a people, to say we are going to celebrate when the lost get found. 
the scriptures are clear. There's three elements to each of these parables. There's a loss. There's a search that is so frantic it doesn't almost make sense, but it shows us about how passionate Jesus is about the seeking and the finding. And when there is finding, there is celebration. That's the pattern that scripture sets up for us as God's people. We relentlessly search. When we search, we find. And when we find, we celebrate. We ought to be celebrating each other's findings lifting out of lostness way more than we are as the people of God. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a vacation guy. Um, I am a, you know, like there's different things. If, if, you're, if you're married or you have a family, you know, when you talk about budget, like each of you have like different things that you prefer to put budget money towards, like the frivolous things that aren't food, shelter. You know, for me, it's technology. Like if I buy a new iPhone, it makes me way more happy than a, than a trip to anywhere would make me, you know. Britta drives, it drives her crazy because she wants to like give me experiences for things like birthdays, but she's so hard pressed to find anything because she's like, well, if I go have, do this thing with you, then when it's over, you'll be like, well, how much was that or whatever. You know, I just, I'm focused on things like things, a thing, a techie thing that I'm geeking out about brings me more joy than a, a trip to somewhere. But Britta's the opposite. Britta likes to take vacations. Like the most, the most rejuvenating thing. If she could spend all of our excess cash on anything, we would be going on vacations like monthly. And they don't have to be fancy or anything, just places that get us out and, and about. And so when we were married, it's one of the things that I had to kind of, you know, we compromise on. We each kind of look at, well, what are our priorities with the little, little leftover money that, you know, most people have is not much, but let's, where do we put this? And, and so we take trips that we pay for that I wouldn't ever take on my own. But one of the things that, that I noticed is when we take those trips, man, it is good for the soul. We go on a vacation every other year with, with, with her family, uh, brother and sister-in-law and, and her parents and, you know, and cousins and all that kind of good stuff um, to, to a beach up in Michigan. It's nothing crazy, but it's just a fun week away. And I, the first time we went, I, I drove there with the thought of, man, I can't believe we're spending this much money on this. And I left with the thought of like, man, that was good for the soul of my kids. That was good for the soul of my wife. That was good for my soul. That was rejuvenating. We got to do that again. We should do that like every other year kind of thing, right? When we start to celebrate, one of the things that happens is it's good for our soul. The Lord uses celebration that initially he calls us to to start to affect the way our souls work. And it brings more joy and vibrancy into the life of God's people, which then increases the fervor and the passion for the seeking and the finding which then increases the finding of the lost, which then increases the celebration. And so what we have is a body of believers that are just seeking and finding and lost are coming and being found and celebrations happening and it's this jubilant thing. And it just increases and increases and increases exponentially until heaven, which is really just that in its fullness. Like you realize that. Heaven, after this life, it's just a boundless celebration because all who are lost have been found. When Jesus comes for a second time and judges the heavens and the earth and the new Jerusalem and we, we get to live in a world without sin and life, do you realize like, there's no lost seeking happening anymore? Because there's no lost. There's just found. And when there's just found, the only thing left to do is endlessly celebrate and worship. 
Dean Weaver, the guy that runs the EPC now, he was a pastor at Memorial Park Church in Pittsburgh when I was interning there. He has a phrase that he uses every once in a while, and I don't know if it's from him or if he stole it from somewhere else, so um, I'm going to give him credit because that's where I heard it. But he says, missions exist for the places where worship does not. Someday, there will be no more places where worship doesn't exist, and missions will cease. We won't be reaching the lost anymore because we've found them all. Because the Lord has done his final work and said his final word. Until then, we set ourselves on a path of seeking and finding and making darn sure we celebrate like crazy when we do. I'm going to go ahead and guess that this woman probably didn't pay for the whole party. I'm going to guess the community rallied. I'm going to hope that she didn't actually drop her entire destitute, causing life savings to celebrate the finding of a coin, but that the community said, wow, good for you. They noticed the joy that finding that coin brought her and how much it changed the trajectory of her day and her weeks and her months ahead to be able to have the life savings, the things that she had to have that she needed for survival that she thought was gone but now was found. The community came together. If you told your friend you found 20 bucks, their reaction would be, cool. (laughs) But when the lost are found, a lot of times our reaction is, cool. How excited do you get if we talk about someone someone we know that came to Jesus, right? You might say, oh, that's that's neat. But the Lord is saying, no, 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 you celebrate that like your life depends on it. It ought to be like a wedding banquet level celebration, right? That's what the Lord calls us to. I want to tell you, if you don't know the Lord, Jesus makes makes clear in this that he places an inherent value on every person. It's not based on where you are in life. That's the beauty of this parable. Like the value of the coin is not determined by where it is lost or where it's residing in the moment or what's going on in its life. The value of the coin is entirely given by the entity, the government, the person that minted it. That's how we know what it's worth. It's worth a drachma because it says so on there because the entity that minted the coin assigned it its value at the time that it was created. The Lord, if you don't know him, assigned you a value at birth. And the value is priceless to him. That's why he'll search for you with every fiber of his being, even if you're not pursuing him, he'll pursue you because you are inherently and intrinsically valuable. I want to encourage you to know that Jesus is searching for you with an unbelievable passion and that he's seeking you out and he's looking to bring you into his fold. And if you want to know more about that, come talk to me or one of the elders if you don't know him. And for those of you who, who do know him, for those who are, who are here and, and know the Lord and have grown with the Lord and have given your life to the Lord, but you feel just a sense of lost in your life, right? You might feel lost, but know a couple things. Number one, you're lost inside of the house. There's a sense in which, in the midst of your loss, you're safe, right? You might feel like you're lost, but the Lord's got you exactly where he wants you, securely in the house, even if you don't feel that way, right? Number two, You might feel lost, but you still have the same value that Jesus gives you, right? He bestows the value upon you. It's not based on where 
you are or who you are or what you've done, but the person who minted you, and that's Jesus Christ. God made you. So the person that gets to set your value isn't even yourself or the people around you that speak junk or truth into your life. It's God himself, and God says you're priceless. So if you don't think you're priceless, well, that's tough. You are, <laughs> right? Because God says you are. Because he made you and he assigned you a value of priceless and then he searches for you relentlessly. Even if you don't think you're worth anything, God says you're worth everything. Number three, you might feel lost, but you have a savior who will turn over every last stone just to find you. To seek after you. To seek after your well-being. And he'll do the work. He'll search for you. He'll seek you out. He'll find you. He'll lead you to him. And then when you get there, through no doing of your own, he'll celebrate your arrival. We're going to look a little bit more about that at that when we look at the parable of the lost son next week. Right? And number four, you might feel lost, but the people who live with you in God's house are rejoicing at your finding. We as a church are here to, to hail every small victory that you experience in Christ Jesus. We're here to cry with you when you fail and when you feel lost. We're here to celebrate with you when you feel found as if the Lord is close to you that week. We're here to, to walk with you through the life and the pain and the junk and the good and the bad and the ugly and all the in-betweens. Right? So, so know that about the Lord and how he works and how he set up his church to function. Right? Next week, we're going to wrap up by looking at at kind of different ways that we can understand lostness. Because I think we think of being lost as out there and non-Christian. But there's different ways that lost can be experienced or manifested. And the parable of the lost son really helps us kind of lean in and press into what that looks like and how the Lord works through all of it. No matter where you are in life and no matter what kind of lost you might feel like you are. All right? So we'll wrap up this time next week when we look at the parable of the lost son. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Lord, we're grateful at being found. We know that our hearts are full of mess and junk and sin and, and wicked thoughts and, and desires and temptations to move far away from you. And so, God, we praise you that you're not a God who just hides somewhere and, and plays hide-and-seek with his people, but you're a God who, who hides in plain sight, who when we count to ten and we open our eyes is standing right in front of us. We don't have to go looking because you say, I'm here. You might think you're playing hide-and-seek, but I've been looking for you, and I've found you. We praise you that you are a God of searching. We, we, we stand in awe and baffled by the love that you display by making us when we fall short by pursuing us through death on a cross, and then by seeking us afterwards with the amount of work that you do to find us when we don't deserve it and when we've done nothing is staggering. And so, Lord, we offer just as a people, as your people, a word of gratitude this morning to you for being the God who seeks the lost and celebrates at their finding. Lord, we look forward to the time where we all get to be in heaven and we just get to celebrate those that have been found. We pray for those outside of our walls and inside of our walls who feel lost today, that you would comfort them, that you would seek after them, that you would use us in various ways to speak truth and love into their life, that you would lead us to them, that we might notice them in their lostness. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, 
Amen.